Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. You may ascend the hill of the Lord. You may stand in his holy place. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessings from the Lord and vindication from, the, from God his Saviour. Such is, such is generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, the King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Isaiah chapter 34. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendour of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of God, the splendour of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give away. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams in the deserts. The burning sand will become a pool, thirsty grounds, bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass, reeds, and papyrus will grow. A highway will be there. It will be it will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on, on that way. Unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. In that reading that Ben and Amy brought to us from Isaiah 35, we catch a glimpse of God's ultimate purpose for creation and for his people. We see a future where the devastating effects of climate change are reversed, where God brings new life to the world and his people. It's a glimpse of God's new creation. And it's one of many pictures that God gives us of the future in the Bible. Like all the others, it's written in and for a particular context, and we'll explore that a bit this morning. It's not immediately apparent how this picture in Isaiah 35 relates to all the other pictures we get in the Bible. 
trying to organise everything that the Bible says about the return of Jesus into a systematic sequence of events is extraordinarily difficult and probably, ultimately, a fruitless task. It's like looking at a range of hills in the distance. Which hills are closer? Which are bigger? You can't tell all that easily. Drive a few miles down the road, you get a totally different perspective. Turn to a different part of the Bible you get a different vision of God's future. Sometimes when seen from perspective A, the future will look vastly different compared with how it looks from perspective B. That doesn't mean to say that either perspective is wrong or that we know nothing about the future and what it's actually going to be like. What we have are impressions, symbols, representations of what God has planned and purposed for his creation and for his people. They provide a bearing by which we can set the compass of our lives, something we can work towards and live for and make the focus of our prayers as we ask for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done. The particular perspective we get on the future in Isaiah 35 is grounded in the exile of God's people, separated from their homeland by hundreds and hundreds of miles of arid desert. And the prophecy opens with a vision of transformation. Like the new life of spring coming after the depths of winter, we see flowers bursting into bloom in beauty and glory and splendour. The desert and the parched land and the wilderness rejoicing and bursting with new life. Why? What's happened? They've seen the glory of the Lord and the splendour of the living God. And hand in hand with this vision of the wilderness coming to life comes a call to strengthen feeble hands to steady weak knees, to strengthen and encourage fearful hearts. Why? What's happening? God is coming. God is coming with vengeance and reward to save and rescue his people. That's what's caused this explosion of life in the desert. The created order is renewed and restored as God comes. As God travels through the desert on his journey to renew and restore his people and ransom and rescue them from captivity. And as the wilderness experience new life, so do God's people. The blind see again. The deaf hear. The lame are leaping around like agile deer, and people who have been unable to speak a word are shouting for joy. The coming of God to his people makes them whole. Then the focus switches back to the wilderness again. Now we see the desert covered in flowing streams and gushing rivers. The burning sand has become a pool of water. Springs are bubbling up out of the thirsty ground. Rather than the desert soaking up every ounce of moisture, suddenly it becomes a source of fresh, life-giving water. So the sandy, rocky haunts of jackals are now fertile places where grass and reeds and papyrus grow. What's happening? God's happening. God is on the move again. This time, having been to fetch his people, he's taking them home along a superhighway specially constructed through the wilderness for their exclusive use. There the people whom God has redeemed and ransomed can travel in perfect safety until they reach Zion with songs in their hearts and their heads crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow, sighing, these are things left far behind. Instead, they are overtaken by joy and gladness. It's a vision of hope, a vision of new life for God's people and for the created world.
And it speaks to us today. For us, images of the desert and the wilderness don't symbolise our being in exile hundreds of miles from home, but they do vividly represent the catastrophic and seemingly irreversible effects of climate change. At the fair trade event on Friday, we learned that every year, 35 million hectares of agricultural land are lost for farming as a result of human degradation and climate change. For those of you who don't have a clue what a hectare is, that's the equivalent of 135,000 square miles every year of the world turning to desert. But Isaiah's vision speaks of God's intention to renew the created order, to bring life instead of death. Or as Paul expresses his hope in Romans 8, creation will be redeemed from the futility of decay and rescued for a glorious freedom. Because God's purpose is not just for the salvation of human souls. God's purpose is for the redemption of the earth. And that's a vision that should inspire us to work for the preservation and the renewal of the world in which we live. If the fertility of the world is on God's heart, it needs to be on ours as well. So there's no room for indifference or apathy on this subject. We are called to strengthen our weak hands, steady our knocking knees, fix our eyes on God's purposes for this world and make them our own in terms of how we live and in terms of how we pray. And then of course in Isaiah 35 as well we get a vision of the new heaven and a new earth where as John puts it at the end of Revelation there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Because the old order of things has passed away. And all those healings which accompanied Jesus' proclamation of the coming kingdom of God as he opened the eyes of the blind, as he unstopped the ears of the deaf, as the lame were walking again, as the dead were raised, as, as, as people could speak, all those healings were harbingers of the wholeness that will characterise God's new creation. It can be a sensitive subject, There are some people who live with disability who feel diminished somewhat by the idea that their condition, which they've come to accept is so much of their identity here and now, will have no place in the new creation God has planned. To say that there won't be any blind or or deaf or, or dumb or lame people in heaven can actually not be hurtful, but can send out the wrong signal to people who have forged a perfectly valid identity with an inability to see or hear or walk or speak in this life. They feel diminished by the idea that there won't be space for you in heaven. Well, there will be space for everybody in heaven. And in some way, we will be perfected there. But that is not in any way to disparage people and say, well, this is part of who I am, and I've learned to live with it and accept myself in my common identity. In whatever way it is, we can say with valid assurance that in God's new kingdom, we will all find a wholeness that's not available to us here, but which will be wholly right for us then. And as Christians, we are called to lift our eyes, lift our heads and look forward to Jesus' return with faith and with expectation. The first time Jesus came, he died and rose again to redeem us and ransom us, and bring us back to God through the cross. 
Next time there will be no rerun of that first visit to earth. He returns to complete the work that he started. To redeem these physical bodies. To redeem the whole created order from futility and death and bring us into life in all its fullness. What we will be like then, I have no idea. There will be continuity between who I am now and who I will be then. But Paul says our life now is is just like a seed that falls into the ground and and dies. And then out of that seed comes a, a plant that's full of life. Our life now is like a seed. Our life then will be like like the plant that comes from that seed. Total transformation. Total difference. But nevertheless, a continuity in terms of identity. Our present life is marked by weakness, mortality and frailty. Our bodies then will be glorious, immortal and powerful. Will we be able to recognise each other? Most certainly it might take a moment or two to take on board to have this new vital person, what kind of person they are, compared with how we remember them from this present life. What age will we be? No idea. Except we will all be free from the limitations that can make this life seem so arduous as we get older and as these bodies of ours get past their prime. This is the hope that we cherish when Jesus returns. As the wilderness bursts into flower when God comes to redeem his people, so the created world will be renewed when Jesus comes to redeem us. That's the perspective that Isaiah sets before his people in this chapter. When and how will this happen? No idea when. We're expressly told that God's timetable is such a closely guarded secret, there's no point in trying to fathom it out. The thing to do is to be ready. Because there won't even be a three-minute warning before Jesus returns. But when you see things in the world going wrong, as we surely do in the news today, our response should not be to succumb to despair, but to lift our eyes up in hope. Because the last act in the drama of creation is when Jesus comes again to make all things new. So strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Don't be afraid. Your God is coming to save you. He comes with reward and with vengeance. Yes, vengeance. There is a note of judgment sounded even in the hopeful perspective of Isaiah 35. Revelation spends six of its 22 chapters cataloguing how, as it is expressed in chapter 11, God will destroy those who destroy the earth. And that dimension of Jesus' future return finds its place within the grand scheme of things. The sounding of the last trumpet, the dead being raised, Jesus bringing with him those who have fallen asleep. A grand reunion which bizarrely seems to take place in midair before the world is judged And God's people return to earth in the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, and everything is made new forever as God's dwelling place is among his people. We are one with God again. And God's plan and purpose in making this world is ultimately fulfilled. 
as we trudge through life on a daily basis, and as we look at the realities of the world around us, all that sometimes can seem a little bit fantastic. Yet we have the promise that God holds this world in his hands and his plan is not to restore it, not to destroy it, but to renew it. And that should bring us assurance and hope. As we look to the future, there are countless doom-laden scenarios for our eventual destruction. Are we going to be swallowed up by the sun? Are we going to be hit by a meteor from outer space? Are we going to eventually disappear to the point where the sun is extinct to us? Is the earth going to be covered by rising sea levels? Are we going to be wiped out by some plague or nuclear catastrophe or by the artificial intelligence that we ourselves have created? You take your pick. But God says his ultimate purpose for us and for this world is our redemption and our renewal. He's promised this in his word. He's actually taken the first step in instigating this new creation by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He's flipped the switch already and started in process, started a process that will not be stopped. Jesus, the firstborn from the dead. His spirit renewing us in our hearts and minds here and now. These are promises, these are foretastes, these are guarantees of what is to come, of God's ultimate purpose that will be fulfilled on Jesus' return. So don't give up hope. Lift your eyes to heaven and put your trust in the one who has promised he is coming to save you and to take you home. You and this world belong to him for eternity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the promise of your return. Thank you that this is not as good as it gets. Thank you that you are seated at the right hand of the Father. And the day will come when your kingdom will arrive in all its fullness. Death, mourning, crying, pain, bereavement and sin and suffering, all these things will be gone. We see the evidence of that in your resurrection from the dead after the cross of Calvary. Thank you that it is your purpose to redeem us from death and to redeem this world from destruction. Give us confidence in you, the living God, And make us ready for your return. Make us faith-filled people. Make us people who live and work for your kingdom. Make us people of hope in a world of despair. May we know that you are the God who holds the future. And we can trust you. Lord, through your Son you've given us life. Release us into living our lives for you. 
and strengthen our faith in the hope and expectation of your eternal life-giving purposes for each and every one of us. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, who loved us, gave himself for us, rose again for us, and is returning for us one day. Hallelujah. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.